Glad to have you with us this morning. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. Every week we take time to teach through God's Word and to listen to God's Word and to respond to God's Word together. So this morning we're going to be in Exodus, uh, as we have been for a while, Exodus chapter 14. If you don't own a Bible, there should be uh, a blue or blue and white copy or a black and white copy around you. If you have this particular one, uh, you can find this on page 32. And so we're going to read from this, and then, uh, and then we'll pray and then get started. The author Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of pi Haroth, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will save the people of Israel. They are wandering in the land, and the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him. And he took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going, were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by pi Haharoth, in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And a pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, 
the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord, the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and his servant, Moses. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Well, happy uh, Father's Day. So glad that you're here uh, with us. And uh, I think it's appropriate as we go through the book of Exodus that we find ourselves here on uh, Father's Day, which is kind of like an artificial hallmark uh, opportunity to remember fathers. But it is nonetheless an opportunity for us to reflect on uh, fatherhood. And if you remember the story of the book of Exodus... It is really a story of fatherhood. Um, It's a story about uh, a a people, Israel, that were kidnapped by an abusive father figure, a maniac, a sociopath named Pharaoh. And uh, we read in Exodus chapter 4, and actually spent a whole uh, sermon on this, talking about how um, God, as true father, Israel's true father, heard the cries of his oppressed children and entered in to deliver them from violence and domination and coercion and abuse. And so we find ourselves in this story uh, today, continuing this theme of Israel uh, as God's children learning what it looks like to live under the, the good kind of benevolence of their true father as free children rather than slaves. So before we start and dive into our message, I want to just uh, say a couple things. One, I want to pray for uh, fathers and fatherhood and for the men in our church. Uh, this is one of those rare opportunities that we have to actually honor and celebrate, but also lament uh, the glories and the opportunities, the beauty and the brokenness around fatherhood. Uh, if you are a man in this room, I want to invite you also, we have a little treat for you today. Uh, my daughters and my wife have put together uh, a little theme, so it's kind of, this is what we call Bougie Father's Day. So these are chomps uh, from uh, Trader Joe's. And they're grass-fed beef, and so out in the gallery there, I want to encourage you to grab one of these, if nothing else, to power up between services. But also, these are very healthy, non-GMO, whatever, whatever goes into the, the health piece of this. Uh, and then there's some themed little dad puns around there just to make it fun. But I want to encourage you to pick this up. It's just a, a way for us to communicate, uh, we see you, we appreciate you, whether you're here and you're a father, whether you're here and you ache to be a father, whether you're here, as all men are, with the wounds of your father, and you long to be under the uh, covering of a good father. Um, We see uh, the heart of God as a father to redeem and reparent those of us men who share wounds. Many of those go hidden, unspoken, 
uh, untalked about, right? We're, we're terrible at communicating and talking about these wounds that we carry as men. And so we want the, this to be a place where men and where fatherhood can be redeemed. And so I want to pray for us as we get ready to start our passage and pray specifically for our men. God, you teach us in the life of Jesus that we are to approach you and to talk to you as our Heavenly Father. And we know in that statement, God, you are seeking to redeem a broken vision for fatherhood. You are inviting us to hold our stories with all of the beauty and the glory and the potential of fatherhood. Fatherhood is a force for life and vitality. Fatherhood is a force for protection and provision. Fatherhood is a source of strength that is woven into the very fabric of what it means to be human. Know that our first parents were Adam and Eve. And in the promise of Adam as a man, as a husband, as a father, is something of what it looks like to be created in your image. To receive the gift of fatherhood is to receive the gift of life, fruitfulness, multiplication. But we know that that has been broken. And then we know we also live in a time where fatherhood has been distorted and corrupted. And many of us live with the scars from our fathers, whether those be scars of abuse or scars of absence, where something wasn't done can be just as powerful as something that was done, something that wasn't said, a presence that wasn't felt a longing that was not fulfilled, an ache that was not tended to. God, we walk into this place, all of us, with both the longings and the frustrations and the disappointments of fatherhood. So God, I pray for uh, the men in this room. I pray that you would enter into this space of beauty and brokenness, both to encourage us that the distortion of something doesn't mean that we throw it away and we forget about it or we we minimize it or seek to get rid of it, but rather to redeem it, God, by your spirit as you're at work among us. And so, God, I pray that you would redeem that uh, gift of fatherhood among us. God, that you would give children to those fathers who desire to be fathers, that you would restore and repair broken relationships from those who are at odds or alienated from their fathers, that you would, um, you would comfort those whose fathers have passed, and who on this side of heaven will not experience closure. God, that you would be their father, that you would reparent them, that you would show them what it looks like to receive grace and love, peace and mercy as fatherhood was intended. And God, I pray that you would make us a church that honors the potential of fatherhood, that honors the men among us, and that invites them to experience the healing that comes through your fatherhood and also through relationships with other men relationships with other women, relationships with children, with grandparents, that this would be truly a multi-generational place where people can experience what it means to hold their story in light of the larger story of redemption that you invite us to experience. God bless us now as we come to your word. Help us to learn what it looks like to walk in the freedom of being your children. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we find here, uh, and we talked last week about the Passover, and uh, we saw last week that Israel has finally left the slavery and the oppression of the Pharaoh and of Egypt. uh, Pharaoh essentially said after the ten devastating plagues, get out of here. And he essentially expels uh, Israel from his presence 
And so we see the, uh, the kind of the, the beginnings here of, of the Exodus, right? Israel leaving Egypt and they're marching towards freedom. And, and I, I, I don't know if you can just stop for a moment and appreciate this moment. Appreciate the euphoria and the joy. Like, like I was looking for pictures this week to try to, try to uh, stir up our imagination. Um, and, and I couldn't really find any that, I, that, I, that quite captured what I, I wanted. Um, but just think about for a moment, like 400 years of systemic abuse. I mean, like, we don't have a moment like this even in our history where we do have that same pattern of systemic abuse for a particular group of people. Like, to have a moment when there's this euphoric release and deliverance and true, full liberation, physical liberation, spiritual liberation, economic liberation, political liberation, like, all of that is wrapped up in this moment. And so Israel begins to experience the first taste of what it looks like to be a free people after generations of abuse and oppression. And what's interesting about the Exodus and what happens, what begins here in chapter 14 and, and carries on for the next couple chapters uh, and really throughout the rest of the Bible is that the Exodus, um, it, it becomes a paradigm for salvation. It becomes an archetype for what it looks like to be uh, liberated, what it looks like to be saved, you could say. Um, and really, the re- th- this kind of saturates the imagination of the, the writers of the Bible. So literally, I think there are hundreds of references to the Exodus throughout the rest of the Bible, drawing on this memory time and time again as a reminder of who God is and what God is doing in the world. And so this becomes rich metaphor, analogy, language, and a, and a pattern for how people think about what it's like to be saved. I mean, you can read about this in almost every book in the Old Testament and many of them in the New Testament as well. You see this in Joshua 3. You see this in First Samuel. You see this uh, all throughout the, the second half of Isaiah, chapters 40 to 66. Th- this idea that to um, come into a relationship with God is to experience freedom, right? That's the whole point of the book of Exodus, right? Liberation, freedom. And not just as we think about freedom, right? Because when we hear the word freedom in America, we think about freedom from, right? Like freedom from constraints, freedom from people telling me what to do, freedom from religion, freedom from any sort of, uh, you know, uh, authority figures. But remember in the book of Exodus, it's not freedom from, it's also freedom to. It's a freedom for worshiping God. So they're delivered out from under an abusive father, not just to be out on their own doing their own thing, you know, you do you, but rather to be free to worship God. God says, I'm going to take you out from underneath this service, and I'm going to put you under my service. You're going to become a worshiper. You're going to be free to worship me, which is why I've created you. And so this exodus can be seen as a paradigm for salvation. It, it, it can be seen as a paradigm for what it looks like to leave behind bondage. What it looks like to leave behind destructive habits, relationships, abuse, addictions, and what it looks like to experience an ongoing freedom in life with our Father. Um, And this isn't just me making this up. This is actually how the writers of the Bible use this story. So 1 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul, in writing about the Christian life, references the Exodus, and here's what he says about how we should be thinking about this, because it's like, okay, what does this have to do with me now? It has everything to do with you now. 
1 Corinthians, Paul says this. Now, these things, referencing the Exodus and the events throughout the rest of the book of Exodus, happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So as you experience leaving behind abuse, addiction, destructive habits and patterns, and you move towards freedom, he says, don't lose heart. You're not the first person to try to be liberated from bondage, whatever that bondage might look like for you now. God is faithful in those temptations. He will not give you more than he can handle. And that's what we see here in the story of the Red Sea is that God doesn't give them more than they can handle. He is going to gently, kindly lead them into freedom. And so here's what we learn about freedom in terms of the freedom to to live as God's created us as his free people is that freedom is both a moment and it's a journey. Freedom is both a moment in time Notice there is a day when they leave. There is a day when they escape. It is a moment, but it is also a journey. It's a process. Graham Goldsworthy, a New Testament uh, scholar and writer, uh, in his book, According to Plan, says this about the, the Exodus. The Exodus is the end of captivity, but it's only the beginning of freedom. God has yet much work to do in order to show his people what it means to live freely as his people. So there's a moment, a decisive moment for all of us when we choose to follow Jesus, to trust in Jesus. And that that moment, the Bible says, you are saved, you are free, you are liberated from the penalty and and the power of sin, right? If you're in Christ, that's true for all of us. But, but freedom is also a progressive journey, And we get so fixated sometimes in the church on the moment, and we forget about the journey. We celebrate the moment when somebody comes to Christ, and we forget it is a long journey towards final and full freedom. Freedom from not just the power of sin, the penalty of sin, but the presence of sin, the bondage of sin. And that's why Paul would also go on to write later in 2 Corinthians, He says, now the Lord is the Spirit, talking about the Holy Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So our lives should be marked by deepening freedom, right? We should be experiencing more liberation the longer we walk with the Spirit of God in us. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. Notice that's in the present tense, not have been, but are being, ongoing, are being transformed, That's the word for metamorphosis right there. We we preached on this in the fall, last fall. Into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Freedom is a moment and a journey. So what does it look like for us to experience the journey towards freedom? Towards becoming more and more and more free and leaving things behind that bind us and blind us. We see that the journey 
to the promised land here in the next couple chapters and into the rest of the Old Testament historical books, the Torah, the five books that Moses writes for us. This journey is not just geographical. It's not just historical. It is also relational and it is spiritual. God needs to drive Egypt out of them before he gets them into the promised land. That's the journey. Not just them getting physically out of Egypt, but God spiritually driving Egypt out of them and, and, and reparenting them essentially into what it looks like to walk as his free children because that's not the default mode of a people who've been systemically abused for 400 years. They have a certain way of relating to their master, so to speak, that God's going to have to undo. So what does it look like here to leave behind a life of bondage and to live into our freedom as God's children? Let me just mark out some uh, things along the path that Moses teaches us. The first is we see that um, God takes them the roundabout way. God doesn't ever take us the direct route. If you back up to chapter 3, when Pharaoh let the people go, verse 17, notice God doesn't lead them by the, the via maris, the road that would have been the most direct. They don't go. It would have been the, the shortest from a geographical standpoint. He did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But notice verse 18. God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. The people of Israel went up out of the land equipped for battle, but they didn't take the most direct route. You see, the kindness of God is often seen in him not leading us the most direct route to where we think we want to go, when we want to go. Anybody experience that? Like, I, I, I think we need to go here. And God says, no, no, we're going to go the roundabout way. We're going to take the long way. God, God knows what we can handle. And he knows when we can handle it. His kindness here is seen in, in them avoiding war. The Philistines were a people of war. And, and it's kind of an irony here. He says they're literally, they're, they're equipped for battle. The idea is they're dressed up, but it's like a Halloween. They've never fought a day in their lives. So they're dressed up in the right suit, but they don't know how to fight. And God says, you're not ready to handle that yet. I don't want you to go back to Egypt because you're not ready for this particular test yet. And so I just want to point out that God is in no particular hurry to rush us to the promised land. He's concerned about the transformation that we need to prepare for that kind of freedom because we're not, we're not ready for the kind of freedom that God has for us. I mean, that's the crazy thing. We think we're ready to be free, but we often live like slaves, and that was true of the people of Israel. I mean, think about it. Israel had lived for 400 years in a system of domination, in a system of ritualistic, systematic dehumanization, fear, abuse, control, isolation, submission. I mean, these are the dynamics of any pattern of abuse, right? Control. Manipulation, fear, isolation, submission. 
And so they had to unlearn some of these patterns. And so God, taking them the roundabout way, was going to teach them what it looked like to shed that way of being in the world and to learn what it looked like to truly be free. One Old Testament scholar says it like this. They had still not shaken off the dust and mortar of Egypt. The taskmaster's shout was still ringing in their ears, and the switch of his whip was still not forgotten. That's a powerful imprint on the human soul. 400 years of generational abuse that has to be undone. And so this roundabout way becomes a time for all of us where we learn what it looks like to truly be led by God's presence, God's power, and God's promises, right? We have to relearn what it means to live as free children. The father, you could say, has to reparent us. We, we have a kind of a parenting scheme that we've learned growing up. We have a, a way of being in the world that is conditioned often by the way that we were raised, right? In our early relationships, and our early habits, and and in our own sin nature, right? Things that are inside of us and outside of us. It teaches us a way of being in the world that looks more like slavery than the freedom that God wants for us. And so the Father reparents us in order to break these cycles. Oftentimes, just like the Israelites, they're multiple generational, right? They're multi-generational. They go back to our parents and our grandparents and their parents. Cycles of anger and abuse. Cycles of sadness and despair and depression. Wounds, sins. And so what we see is God enters into that. We see the pillar of cloud and fire, God's manifest presence among them, teaching them, walking with them. And you can imagine how confusing this probably was. Like time and time again, they get going a direction and God pulls them back and says, now I want you to go this way. Which if you look at the way that it's laid out geographically, it looks like this, right? On the way down to the Red Sea. And all of a sudden, they find themselves trapped between the sea and the Egyptians. Confused. Wait a minute, God, I thought we were going to be free. Now we have our backs against the Red Sea, and we have the Egyptians coming after us. So we see the second movement here in the roundabout way, and then ambivalence. Ambivalence. They're caught between, right? They lift up their eyes as they get their back to the Red Sea and they realize the Egyptians are now coming after them. Pharaoh has a change of heart and he amasses his, his military force, which again, chariots in that day, I mean, like that's the most advanced military technology available. Uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these, a horde now descending on these recently freed slaves. And I think it's an understatement when, when the Bible says they were terrified when they lifted up their eyes. Fear. When we realize that sometimes the old masters that we serve come after us. They don't die easily. Evil never dies easily. Bondage doesn't go down quickly. And they look back. And ambivalence is this space that's a really interesting space. It's a dangerous space. It's the space between bondage and freedom. It's the space between um, bondage and freedom, between two masters, Pharaoh and Yahweh. 
And it's a really hard place to be in no man's land, right? Because um, you've left the comfort and security of the systems from your past that worked for you, even if they were abusive, even if they were destructive, we become addicted to these patterns because at least we know what they are. At least they're predictable. At least they're consistent. And, and, and yet, we still have not replaced those systems with new life-giving systems or habits or relationships with God and with other people. And so we find ourselves in this place of ambiguity, of ambivalence, looking to the past, but still longing for the future. And it's a place of vulnerability where it's easy to go back because as humans, it's hard for us to hold tension. It's hard for us to hold ambiguity. It's hard for us to deal with anxiety and uncertainty. And so we want to go back, even to cruel masters. You notice what happens here, happens to all of us. They begin to reinterpret their past. It wasn't that bad, right? Like slavery wasn't so bad. They begin to look back and say, um, you know, like, look at, look at our time. Moses, why are you doing this to us? What have you done in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said, verse 12, to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. They didn't say that. But they begin to reinterpret the past and notice how quickly God gets out of the frame. The God who just brought 10 plagues. Now all of a sudden, what's on their lips? Five times they mention Egypt. How many times do they mention God? Zero. How easy is it for us when we are experiencing raw fear and anxiety for us to forget about God and for our problems and our past to become luminary and to get really big and for God to get really small? They distort the facts from the past. You remember the good old days when we were in slavery in Egypt? <laughs> the sense of weird nostalgia that we get when we look to the past? The golden days of slavery? They restrict their options. They reinterpret the past. They restrict their options. At this point, it's either slavery, we go back to slavery, or it's death. We'll take slavery, thank you very much. Like, they factored God out. What about miracles? What about deliverance? What about the fact that God just did 10 of these and he could do it again? And then we see that they reject the help of others. They begin to blame Moses. And what we often do when people reach out to us in the midst of that place of ambivalence, we reject their help and we say, no, thank you, I've got this figured out. And we especially get blaming towards authority figures. We project our own fears on them. And man, this... This pattern you can see in any kind of abuse or addiction. You think about sexual addiction. And, and those of you who've been trapped in the throes of pornography. And you, and you look back after you've been delivered maybe by God. Your experience deliverance. And you look back and you say, wow, this freedom is too much for me to handle. And, and maybe you prefer the, the, the cheap intimacy over the true, deep, and lasting freedom that God is inviting you into as a person who doesn't have to be captive to lust. Maybe it's the addiction or the, the craziness of being busy, and you're addicted to this particular pattern of, of just being so hurried in your life that you don't know what to do with the freedom of just being still and slowing down and learning Sabbath way of life. And so it's just easier to go back and, and work and to numb out because to slow down is to have to deal with what stirs up in that space. And who wants to do that? Maybe it's an abusive relationship. Again, like, 
I don't know what that looks like for you, but my point is, all of us face those temptations to want to go back and to lose the sense of God. What is God doing? Where is he in the midst of what I'm, what I'm experiencing? But God gives us, thirdly, wise leaders. Wise leadership. God gives the people of Israel, in the midst of their ambivalence, on the roundabout way, he gives them Moses. And this really brings our, our story of Moses full circle, right? Because we met Moses early on in, in Exodus 2 and 3 as a man who was fearful and who acted out of that fear with rage. He killed somebody, and then God sent him into the wilderness for 40 years to learn what it looked like to live by faith. And then he gives him a burning bush encounter, and invites him into communion, into relationship with him. And now this Moses stands in the midst of that ambivalence as a wise mentor, as a guide, as a leader. And here's the thing you need to know. On the journey in the roundabout way through the wilderness, through the desert, which we will all face at different seasons of our life, we cannot survive the confusion and the chaos of the wilderness without the help of seasoned leaders. Can't do it. Notice the, the conversation here. Moses' response, fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. He's saying, you must see these Egyptians. This trap that Pharaoh thinks he's foisting on you is actually a trap to catch him. You must see the Egyptians. Why? God wants you to see them because this is the last time you will ever see them again. The Lord will fight for you. And get this, you have only to be silent. He says, shut up. <laughs> All you have to do is just be quiet and watch. God will do this. He will fight for you. I mean, that's the beauty of like a grounded leader who's been with God, who's seasoned and who knows and is seeing God deliver them out of bondage time and time again. They know what it's like to hear the voice of God in the midst of the anxiety and to say, hey, shut up. Excuse my English. Be quiet calm down. Stop talking. Henri Nouwen, as you know, one of my favorite writers, says, the great illusion of leadership is to think that man can be led out of the desert by someone who's never been there. Moses was able to maintain a calm, non-anxious presence in the midst of paralyzing fear because he had been through his own roundabout way. He had been through his own wilderness and he had learned these lessons over 40 years in silence and solitude and weakness and vulnerability and dependence on God. And that's what a wise leader can do for us in the midst of confusion and in the midst of learning greater levels of freedom from bondage is they can help reframe our story and reframe our struggles in light of God's bigger story of redemption. They see things in a horizon that we can't see. When our horizon is so narrow, they say, hey, look up. See what God's done in the past. See what God has promised to do in the future and find your story. Don't let your story and the horizon that you're experiencing right now be the only horizon. Look up and see the victory of God. Look up and see that God will fight for you as he has always fought for his people. He says, see God's salvation. See his redemption in the midst of your pain your brokenness, and your ambivalence. Amen, this is hard for us. This is hard. We are a young church on the whole. Now, Father's Day, we look kind of like a normal church, okay? But normally, when your parents aren't here, 
We're a very young church. And it's hard for us to see God's salvation, to stand firm and not be afraid. We are so afraid. We are so anxious. We are so doubting. We are so ambivalent in our walk with God. And it's hard for us because we live in what poet Robert Bly once called the sibling society, right? Where adults want to be children and children don't want to grow up to be adults. And we're not surrounded by it, especially those of us who've moved to the city. We find like, where did all the adults go? They're not here. They don't live in my neighborhood. Lots of them moved out of the city a long time ago. But it's hard for us because of the transience, because of the way we live our lives. Even those of us who say, like people say all the time at Soma, I want a mentor. I'd love an older person to come alongside me. But I'm not available. I'm available on this date and this day, but I'm going to be gone for the next two months. So if they could just kind of fit themselves into my schedule while I'm traveling to Europe and I've got this business deal going, okay, then, then I need a mentor, that kind of mentor. Do you have any of those? Sorry, we don't have any of those. <laughs> we have awesome, amazing seasoned leaders in our church here saying, going, hey, I'm, I'm available. Would you like to come to my house? Would you like to grab coffee? Okay, uh, let me schedule. I mean, again, like our pattern of life doesn't lend itself to surrounding ourselves consistently with wise mentors. Furthermore, we've lost multi-generational institutions that made it easier for this to happen on a regular basis. The kind of churches, the kind of institutions that many of us grew up in are disappearing. So it makes it hard for us to live in close proximity with wise mentors, people who've been through the desert and who can say, hey, as Jonathan Collard, one of my wise Moses figures in my life often says, it's just going to be okay. Like, I've been here before. It's just going to be okay. You got yourself into this position, like God's going to get you out, but you're just going to have to wait. The last thing we see is deliverance. The roundabout way leads us to ambivalence. God gives us wise mentors, and then he shows us his salvation which leads us to a place of trust and dependence. That's the goal here of the roundabout way. Moses says, be quiet. God will fight for you. Notice he tells them in verse 15, he says, basically stop praying and start moving. Why do you cry to me, he says. Tell the people of Israel, go forward. Don't get stuck in the place of ambivalence. Keep moving, he says. Don't stop. Don't get stuck. Don't get paralyzed in the place of ambivalence where you're looking to the past and you're not quite sure. He says, when you don't know what to do, yes, uh, we're all for prayer, right? We're all for praying. But sometimes you just got to get up and keep moving forward. Move forward. Don't get stuck. There's this tension here between waiting and moving, silence and action, Only when we learn to be silent before God do we know when we need to move. And if we're always on the move, we oftentimes don't pay attention when God's telling us to be quiet and wait. So we need both. We see that God delivers them. He parts the sea. He he brings them out of Egypt. He delivers them. Israel saw, verse 31, the great power that the Lord used. The people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in Moses. God literally turns the technology and the military strength against Pharaoh and against his army. He turns the chaos of the waters, which again has been a big theme in the book of Exodus, into a vehicle for salvation. Salvation for the Israelites, judgment for their oppressors. God turns their fear of the Egyptians into a fear and an awe of his power. And not the kind of fear that has us, you know, kind of shriveling before him, 
in fear of an abusive father, but the kind of fear that generates awe and wonder, amazement. That's what we learn from this story. First, again, go back to 1 Corinthians 10. Paul says this, and we'll close with a couple applications here. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And get this, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Paul calls this their baptism. He says what was happening as they stepped foot into the waters was an act of trust and dependence. See, they, they didn't trust God yet. They weren't dependent on God. They were trusting Egypt. They were trusting in the systems of Pharaoh. Even though it was abusive, it's what they knew. And God says, I want you to learn to trust me as your heavenly father. That was their baptism. They went under the waters of baptism, under the judgment of God, but God delivers them through. They walk through on dry ground, and no longer will they ever see Egypt again in the book. That's what God's doing. That is the baptism of trust and dependence that he invites us to experience in the freedom that he offers in Jesus Christ. And so let me just sum this up with three applications one, expect the roundabout way in your journey. If you expect that the Christian life is going to be one mountaintop to the next and one journey of victory to the next, you will be disappointed. Expect the movement from bondage to freedom to take a long time, like the rest of your life. Don't be surprised if God takes you the roundabout way to teach you trust and dependence. Second thing, tie yourself to a community of faith. Like, that's why we need one another. We need, um, we need, like, the markers of baptism. Like, if you've not been baptized, which is essentially to identify yourself with a people and with a God, with your Father, you need baptism as, t- baptism as one of those anchors to remind you that God has delivered you out of this way of life, out of this country, out of this domain, out of this demonic system, this Pharaoh-like system of Satan, and transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved son, into the kingdom of love. That's what Jesus came to do. And that's why a community of faith with wise leaders and with these markers and these rituals and these things that we do together as a family, this community life is absolutely indispensable. You cannot do this alone. You need a community of faith. And thirdly, live in the Spirit's freedom. Live in the Spirit's freedom. This is what the Holy Spirit does in us. He is in the process of converting us from fear and slavery and bondage into a life of freedom. Two, two verses we'll close with. 1 Corinthians 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all people everywhere at all times and places, all were made to drink of one spirit. This is what the spirit of God is about. It's freedom, right? Inviting us into deeper levels of holistic, forever freedom. And that's why he says in Romans 8, Paul says, for all you who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So I don't know where you find yourselves on that journey today. But I just want to encourage you, if you find yourself confused, if you find yourself despairing, because you're like, I thought I kicked this habit, I thought I kicked this thing, and I find that I continue to look back, I continue to struggle, just know that is 
part of the journey. It is part of the journey that we will constantly be tempted to look back, but God has given us his spirit, not for a once and for all freedom that we experience right now, but as a down payment, the Bible says, of the increasing freedom and glory of what it looks like to live as God's free children. That is the work of the spirit. And so Moses says to us, stand firm, be still, be quiet. The Lord will fight for you. He will bring about your healing. Paul says he will finish the work that he started in you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this journey of freedom that you've invited us to experience as your sons and daughters. Help us to live as the free people that you've called us to be. Empower us by your Holy Spirit to see your salvation, to not despair when old masters, old uh, bondage taskmasters come after us, but to rather look forward and to see, to look backwards to see your deliverance in the past and to look forward to see the deliverance that you want to bring about continuing, continuing in our lives through the work of your Holy Spirit. Help us to receive that, to submit to that, to live in the freedom that you've called us to. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we prepare